Hello everyone, welcome back to what will be our penultimate episode in our Music from Pandemic Years series that we've been doing here at Attention to Detail. This is Jacob joining you as always, and I'm very excited about today's episode because we finally come to the pandemic year that I think we've all heard a lot about over the course of the last few months, the year 1918. This was the Spanish flu pandemic, and it's the pandemic that hit the United States very hard in addition to many other countries. The years that we've used so far have not been as pertinent to our historical understanding of how pandemics unfold, at least here in the U.S., and I actually think we don't have really much to go off of after 1918 because it seems that a lot of our conclusions, historical evidence for how stuff is going to unfold today is is based on this pandemic of 1918. In any case, big pandemic year and also a massive, massive year time in history. For our episode today, kind of the pertinent history is going to be in Europe. And of course, this is right this year immediately follows the conclusion of, of World War One, and Europe was kind of in shambles. There's many, many power scrambles, a lot of a lot of rushing to sort out what type of governmental structures were going to exist. I'm not going to try to summarize the history of, of this year too much here because I'm sure I'd do a terrible job. But as it's pertinent to our episode today, we're going to be looking primarily at Eastern Europe, where again, there was a big scramble and you have all of these small ethnic groups making up these kind of somewhat arbitrarily divided countries and there's some reshuffling that goes on. And so in 1918, you have the formation of Czechoslovakia, which contains actually many ethnic groups, the two primary ones being the Czechs and the Slovaks. And so that's a little bit of a tenuous political setup. You also have Hungary, which has recently, you know, for the past many, many years, been an integral part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And the Austro-Hungarian Empire was certainly at the epicenter of World War I and had fallen. And so there's, there's a scramble in Hungary as well for political control. And in 1918, it comes under somewhat leftist rule, but there's another revolution in 1919, a communist revolution of sorts that follows the, the Russian communist revolution of 1917. So a lot of, of scrambling. And a lot of this scrambling is based around ideas of national or kind of ethnic group identity, especially in Eastern Europe. And so we had already seen it prior to World War I, both in actual history and certainly in musical history, but these ideas of nationalism or at least uh, pride and a desire to have a state that represents your ethnic group was very much present in, in Eastern Europe and all of these power scrambles right after World War I. So in any case, let's get right to our music because... In, in keeping with this being a big pandemic year, I've chosen some, some massive pieces of music here. And I'm very excited about the two pieces that we're going we're gonna to hit today. Again, it's going to be a little bit of a bare bones overview because these are 
especially our second piece is a monstrous piece. And so we'll, we'll kind of skim it a little bit, but I'll encourage our listeners, as always, to go and check out the pieces that we review in as much detail as you might like. But we're going to start with a piece by the composer Leos Janacek, one of my all-time favorite composers, and in fact, a composer I think is maybe one of the most underrated composers, if not the single most underrated composer in the history of classical music. And in preparing for this podcast, I really went down a rabbit's hole, read like the majority of two people's dissertations on Janacek, because there's not that much scholarly work done on Janacek, but I found it incredibly interesting and of course the point of this podcast I've tried to distill some of this information for all of you as it relates to Terrace Bulba the piece that we're going to be reviewing today so just a little background about Janacek because it's important to understanding his music one thing that you will find if you listen to the music of Janacek is at least that I find it's unbelievably distinctive. And so Janacek is one of those composers, when you hear it, you almost immediately can say to yourself, that's Janacek. And so I am interested in why that is, and we'll try to get into some of some unique elements of his style as they relate to Teres Balba. But two things of importance about Janacek's kind of music theory, his theory of harmony, composition... One thing is that Janacek was really interested in what he called speech melodies. And so he would actually go and record people speaking, children, old people, as well as normal adults, and then very accurately in musical notation, notate the pitch and rhythm of their speech. And so he would hear a child say something like, Grandma and he would notate exactly the rhythm of that phrase that has a falling gesture, but he would notate the actual interval that the child used. And he would develop these kind of speech melodies. And a lot of his music is based off of speech melodies. This has garnered the label for Janacek of realism. People often call him a realist composer. And the reason why they do that, I think, is because... His music is derived from these very real-life elements of how we speak. In the case of Janacek, mostly how people speak in Czech. This is where kind of the nationalistic elements come into Janacek's music, is that he was really writing Czech music based on the Czech language, the Czech culture, idiomatic elements of Czech society. But he constructed all of this music, a lot of his music, off these speech melodies, and that garnered this label of, of realism because in some way his music is grounded in the real world of language, of society. What this results in is music that's often very different from what we might expect. Most music that we've heard up to this point is what we might call quartile, or it's arranged in 2 plus 2, 4 plus 4, 8 plus 8. And so a lot of the music that we, you know, almost all pop music is quartile, where it's four-bar phrases. Speech doesn't necessarily work that way, and Janacek felt that that quartile system was somewhat concocted. And so 
his music unfolds in the rhythm of natural speech. And so that might be in groups of threes and fives and sevens in addition to fours. He also, so that's, that's one element of his realism. There's this other element of his approach to harmony, his harmonic realism, if you want to call it that, which also is very, very important in his music. Because he was fascinated with the psychology and science of how we perceive music. And he had learned this phenomenon that I'll try to distill here, which effectively is that our eardrums, when we listen to music, continue to sympathetically vibrate with the music that we've heard for a split second, like two-tenths of a second or something, after we're done hearing that music. And so if you hear a harmony, your eardrum is vibrating you know, with that harmony. And then even when that harmony stops, there's a brief moment where your eardrum continues to vibrate. And so in that brief moment, if you hear another harmony that has totally different notes, what happens in your ear, just for a brief second, is a moment of what he called chaos, basically, where you have these clashing sounds of totally dissonant harmonies together. And then it gets resolved because the sympathetic reverberations from the first harmony are replaced with the sympathetic vibrations of the second harmony. But there's this brief moment of chaos, and out of that chaos is produced all of this resolution, feelings of excitement, feelings of all this kind of stuff. Now, there's tons of detail about Janacek's whole theory of this, how it relates to his compositions, stuff like that. But what's going to be pertinent for us as we review this music is that Janacek would use really odd harmonies in sequence. Harmonies that we wouldn't find in sequence in any classic tonal Western music. But the reason why he was doing this was because of this phenomenon. He felt that he was creating these moments of brief chaos and then resolution to a totally different sound world. And so you will hear that. I'll illustrate to you exactly how that works in the context of his music. But what that does is, like so many modernist works that didn't want to be atonal, like Schoenberg, who we reviewed on our last podcast, if they wanted to instead have an interesting approach to tonality like Stravinsky had on our previous review, then this was one way that Janacek found to do that. He could use totally tonal harmonies, but in totally unique, awkward, different sequences, and create this very modern-sounding music, but still very, very tonal music. And so that's what you'll hear in the music of Janacek, is this, this highly tonal, but also highly modernist music. That's what gives it its unique flair, I think. I should mention Janacek was a a Czech composer, the last syllable of his name, hopefully is a little bit of a clue to that. And so he was operating, writing this piece, Terrace Bulba, in 1918, amidst all of this chaos in Czechoslovakia, with a, a lot of potential national pride. And in fact, the story of Terrace Bulba is a story about this famous Cossack, and the Cossacks were this um, small ethnic group in the eastern Slovakian region, they they bordered with Russia, and they had a lot um, on their plate coming up in the next few years with with the Bolshevik rule in 
in Russia. It's an interesting history if you want to look into that. But again, the subject matter of a kind of underrepresented, segregated against ethnic group is very pertinent here in, in Terespalba. So Terespalba, Janacek calls a rhapsody because he takes three vignettes from this story. This is the story by Gogol, by the way, but used um, here by Janacek in these three vignettes. And it's kind of rhapsodic in nature in that it, it floats between these, these three different short stories from the, from the novel. And the first movement is about the death of Andre, one of Terespalba's two sons. Andre has kind of naively, stupidly gone into a Polish camp. The Polish uh, forces were battling with the Cossacks because he's in love with a Polish girl. And his dad ends up seeing him as this traitor and Terespalba ends up killing his son. This is not a great, it's a, it's a pretty uh, downer plot here. So we'll uh, bear with us as we, as we go through this incredibly pessimistic plot, but somewhat uplifting music. So the first movement is about this, this, this sequence of, of Terespalba killing his, his son. And I want to listen to a, a passage from the opening of this movement because it illustrates that concept that I was just talking about in Janacek of harmonies blending into each other and creating this moment of chaos and then resolution. So let me play for you this, this short clip right at the beginning of this first movement of Terrasbalba, and then we will break it down. So what Janacek has done for us here is actually illustrated this concept in the music that he thinks is going on all the time in our in our ears. So the music builds up there, gets really loud, and then for this brief, brief, fleeting moment, we hear a tonal, nice, major chord, chord of F-sharp major, sounds like this. Happened so fast, you might not have even noticed that sonority. It's the last thing we hear when that music gets really loud. But then what's left over is that organ that's playing by itself. And the organ is playing this kind of slightly chaotic, dissonant harmony of... But then it resolves to this. And this is kind of the idea that Janacek feels like is going on on a very, very minute, small scale all the time for us. Is this idea of, boom, we hear something quickly and then there's a moment of chaos and then it resolves to the next thing that we're going to hear. And so functionally, in terms of standard music theory, this chord... is not even a chord that we can really describe in standard music theory, and it certainly doesn't just resolve easily to hear. But Janacek has kind of loosened the rules on himself because what it's really about is just this chaos resolving to harmony again after those sympathetic vibrations have, have left our eardrum. And so... While this might seem like a highly, highly technical concept, it actually gets at one of the 
one of the fundamental elements of, of music and how we perceive it, that of kind of tension and resolution. In the case of Janacek, harmonic tension and harmonic resolution. So then in this movement, uh, we hear some battle music before Teres Balba finally comes to his son and the decisive moment happens. Let's hear a little bit of that uh, very picturesque battle music from the middle of this first movement, The Death of Andre. So again, they're dramatic music, but hopefully we can hear that it's it's very tonal in some ways. It doesn't sound atonal like that Schoenberg music. Maybe it sounds a little interesting, unique, folksy, but very harmonious, albeit modern sounding. All right, so then at the end of the first movement, I want to play for you the very end of the first movement where we hear this love theme from Andre to this Polish girl that he's fallen in love with right before He's killed by his father. And a nice passage in a key here of, of E major. And again, important that we're getting keys because this is what makes Janacek a little bit more like a composer like Stravinsky and not like Schoenberg, is that that means that we have this home base that we feel that we can come back to. So here's some of the love theme at the end of the first movement. Again, there, what gives that such unique sound is we hear this, which is a harmony that we can understand, and then we hear, and again, what Janacek thinks is going on there is that for a brief second we're hearing this, very chaotic, but it's resolving to which gives us this nice sense of kind of conciliation or, or arrival. So that's what's at play here in Janacek's music. Now we come to the second movement, my personal favorite. This is the death of Ostap, his, his other son. Ostap gets captured by the Poles. He, he doesn't naively go over to the Polish camp. But I want to listen to the beginning of this second movement because... I also think Janacek is a master orchestrator. Again, what orchestration means is interesting choice of instruments, ability to create these incredible sounds with the symphony orchestra. So just listen to this passage at the beginning of the second movement. It's an excellent illustration of both this unique Janacek harmony and also his great ability to create these fantastic orchestral colors. Mm -hmm. 
lot going on there. Incredible use of these high woodwinds and the harp to create that kind of shimmering sound. And then you hear this almost grating violin sound, very aggressive, very pointed, that cuts through. And one thing that Janacek is doing here, which he did often, is using folk modes or scales. Again, if you want to listen to our modes and scales episode, that will be very illuminating to understand the music of Janacek because he uses so many of these interesting scales. Here he's using what's called the pentatonic scale, the most basic folk-like scale that sounds like this. So we hear, and that's all pentatonic in nature. But also in that passage, like I've mentioned before, what we hear is this. And then right after that, it shifts down, kind of jolts down to, then again, drops suddenly down to, these are chords that in, in standard Western music are not related to one e another at all, really. And so if we heard them at the same time, it would sound like this. A very dissonant sound. But when we hear them one after another in this Janacek theory, we hear... Then for this brief second, we hear... And then we hear... So this moment of harmony, chaos, harmony. And he's illustrating that again in the beginning of this, this second movement. So then let's also listen to the end of this movement. They've captured Ostap, and this son apparently Teres Bulba loves because he actually goes to rescue him. And there's this wild Polish mazurka dance at the end of this movement. And you can hear Teres Bulba trying to fight through the throng to get to his son who's going to be executed. He's represented by the low trombones, but this wild dance is going on, and you hear Ostap, his son, cry out this high clarinet right before he's, he's executed. So here's that very vivid scene at the end of this second movement. from the clarinet and then the moment of, of execution. 
So then we come to the final movement, the prophecy and death of, of Terrace Bulba. So all of our main characters, just like Hamlet, they all get, get offed in the end. Um, and in this movement, there's a battle, a final battle. Terrace Bulba is captured. Then he issues this, this prophecy, and then he himself is, is killed as this kind of Cossack martyr. So let's hear some of the beginning patriotic music. This is very, a very patriotic uh, Cossack patriotism movement. And then we hear his capture. So here's a little bit of the music towards the beginning of this, this last and most important movement. So kind of a long clip there, but you hear this patriotic, highly patriotic, nationalistic music. It sounds very folksy. Again, the way Zianacek is doing that is through these ideas of, of one, those speech melodies, but also taking these folk scales and using them to build his melodies. And then we hear the capture in that kind of more reserved, quiet section and so, so then there's this prophecy music, and I want to play this. This is a long clip for the organ and the brass, but this is kind of the, the, the crux of the whole piece and the climax here, because when Taras Bulba gets captured, he issues this prophecy right before he is killed himself. He says, Do you think that there's anything in the world that a Cossack is afraid of? The time will come when you'll learn what orthodox Russian faith actually is. Already people sense it far and near. A Tsar will arise from Russian soil and there won't be a power in the world which will not submit to him. So there's this idea that, that the Cossacks will come to at least gain their own independence, if not rule over all of Russia. That's the prophecy that Taras Balba submits here right before he's killed. So let's listen. This is a little longer clip, but a fantastic clip for the organ and the brass, primarily this prophecy music.
so we finally come to this very rousing finale, triumphant ending. And I want to illustrate to you why or how so much of Janacek sounds so similar. And this is not a knock on Janacek because the similarities in my mind are great. You know, <laughs> it's all of his best music that sounds similar to, to one, uh, itself. And so to me, that's not really a knock. He, he understood how to write good music and, and he did it often. But I want to play for you the very end of this Taras Balba piece, and then I want to play a little bit of the ending to one of his other most famous pieces, his Sinfonietta, and I think you'll find they are very, very similar. So first, here's the last few bars of this Taras Balba Rhapsody for Orchestra by Janacek. Teres Balba, and here's the end to his Sinfonietta. Very, very similar music. So there is Teres Balba from Janacek. If there is a composer that I would encourage you to go listen to way more of, I think no better composer than Janacek. In addition to some of these orchestral pieces, he wrote some phenomenal operas as well. I was listening the other day to this opera, Yanufa, which is one of his earliest operas. It's an absolute masterpiece. He also wrote Cunning Little Vixen, House of the Dead, these are just brilliant, brilliant works, and Janacek, I think, deserves to be in the kind of A-list canon of composers that we have in classical music. With that said, we're going to go on to our other massive, massive piece that we're reviewing today, and this is an opera. This is Bartok's Bluebeard's Castle, and I think this is an excellent piece to pair with Terrace Balba that we've just reviewed because there's many, many similarities in the tonal language, in the folk idioms that Bartok and Janacek are using here. Um, we're going to skip a lot of this because uh, it's such a long piece, but I want to talk a little bit about, if you, if you haven't heard yet our review of Bartok's Wooden Prince, and again, our episode on scales, those might be a little bit kind of windows into what's going on in this Bluebeard's Castle piece, and so if you want a little more in-depth review of Bartok, because he's such an important and great composer, you can look look there, because we're going to skim this a little bit today. But this is a great piece, and I, I figured we should, we should touch on it as well. I'm kind of cheating here, because it was actually written in 1911, but it was premiered in 1918. And as I mentioned, in Hungary, tons of political strife in Hungary at the time. In fact, Bartok himself took part in some of these revolutions of 1919, the, the communist revolutions that, that tried to overthrow this 
provisional government in 1918, this somewhat leftist provisional government, not radical enough for the communists who were incredibly tired of, of many years of very conservative Habsburg rule under the, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And so that's the, that's the climate in which this Bluebeard's Castle piece was written. And I'll just give a brief crash course overview of the plot. It's actually an incredibly simple plot, so this, this is easy to do because there's only two characters in this plot, Bluebeard and Judith, his, his new wife. And basically all that happens in this opera is they've recently been married and Judith comes back to Bluebeard's castle and he wants her, there's seven doors in this castle and he wants her not to open them. But she insists, you know, she's in love with him and he has nothing to hide. She wants to open these seven doors. And so the extent of this opera is her opening these seven doors. It's a big, long prologue where they arrive at the castle and they talk about, should I open these doors? Maybe shouldn't. Um, a key here is that a lot of this prologue centers around the tone, the key of F sharp. Now, again, we don't need to know what that means, but that's kind of our home base for the beginning. And if you listen to our breakdown of The Wooden Prince, Bartok was a huge fan of, fan of what we call arch forms or palindromic structures, where it, like an arch, it starts in one place, goes somewhere else, and then comes back kind of in a mirror image to that place. And so that will be important. This prologue starts in F sharp. And spoiler alert, we're going to end in F-sharp. So for the purposes of this review, we're going to skip a lot of material and we're just going to hear the music from the seven doors as they get opened. Because this is really, for me, the most interesting music of the opera. And each door is specified by Bartok to have a color of light that comes out of it when the door is opened. It's supposed to be projected on the stage. And I think these colors are actually also illuminating because they give us a little bit more of a visual sense of, of what's going on here. And so the first door that's opened is Bluebeard's torture chamber. We can already see he's not a particularly savory guy. And so the color here that comes out is red, of course. And let's listen to a little bit of this torture chamber music from the first door of Bluebeard's castle. be able to hear in that first clip there, one interesting element of this opera is that it's in Hungarian, and Hungarian is a very challenging, challenging language. And similar to Janacek, Bartok was really interested in the patterns of Hungarian speech. And so his melodies, kind of like Janacek, follow the pattern of speech a lot of the time. And so they're not these long, aria-like melodies they're these kind of short utterances, very speech-like. And so you hear a little bit of that, and you will continue to hear that in our clips here, one way in which these composers are very similar. Another way is that Bartok is really using this concept in this piece of 
polytonality. And what that means is basically two chords, two tonalities, two harmonies sounding at the same time. And so we heard this in a different guise in the Janacek, where these harmonies blend together. And in Bartok, we often just hear them at the same time to create this, this unique sound. The other really important element of this opera specifically is that it uses the interval of what we call a minor second, this. You heard the violins playing this really high, shrill, dissonant sound. And this grating dissonant interval of two notes is meant to represent blood specifically in this piece. And so what happens after each door is opened, and this is why I'm skipping over a lot, is that basically every time Judith opens a door, she sees this new room, in this case the torture chamber, and then she comes to find there's blood all over the room. And we're, we're left wondering for a while, what is this? What is this blood? And so we hear the music of the torture chamber, then we hear some blood music that is heavily focused on this dissonant interval of a second. The other important thing to note in that first clip is that we were hearing this music. This was using what's called an octatonic scale. Again, if you want to know what that is, you can go back to our episode on scales or our Bartok Wooden Prince episode. It's what gives it that kind of mystical, creepy quality. But then we hear in the middle of that clip, if you want to go back and listen again, we hear the horns play this chord. which is basically a C major chord. And I only point that out now because C major is going to become very important later. And it's the furthest thing away from F sharp, that, that place that we started. And so we're still very close to this F sharp home base of our opening, but we're hearing this C major, the furthest thing from that. And Bartok is a master at introducing these ideas that will become very important later. So in any case, we won't jump ahead yet. We're only at our second door now. So she's seen the torture chamber and she's scared, but she wants to persist and keep opening these doors. Bluebeard keeps asking her not to do so, but she insists. The second door is the armory, and this is yellow-red. This holds all of Bluebeard's arms, shields, all that kind of stuff. So here's a little bit of the armory music. playing a little bit because we hear at the end some of the blood music you hear towards the end we hear again that grating sound when she sees the blood now stained on these helmets and swords here in the armory we're getting another very interesting use of this polytonality of sorts we're hearing that's what we hear at the very beginning played by those high clarinets 
This is the interval of a fifth. It's considered one of the most pure natural intervals. And this is what establishes our key of, again, F sharp. But under that, we're hearing other fifths in totally different keys. So the trumpet is playing this. So we're hearing these two things at the same time, which seem somewhat unrelated to each other, but in the context of themselves, make perfect sense. So another use of this polytonality to create this, this very interesting color for this armory movement here. And we're still sticking around that note of, of F-sharp, so we'll keep that in our minds. Then we come to my personal favorite movement. I think this is an excellent, again, just like Janacek, Bartok, dazzling, dazzling orchestrator. And I also think excellent use of harmony, interesting colors here. This is the third door. This is his gold stores. And of course, the light has to be gold in. So here's the gold room, the third door, when Judith opens this third door in Bluebeard's castle. So here we hear an actual, really a, a tonal harmonious passage in D major. That's the chord that we hear these trumpets playing. And again, brilliant use of the celeste, this sparkling bell-like instrument and some other fantastic solo violin. But here, if you listen to our Wooden Prince breakdown, one of the most important scales that Bartok is using there is the Mixolydian scale, and again, we won't review that here now, but it sounds like this. And again, we're getting that type of harmony here in this brilliant third door passage. So all of these interesting approaches by Bartok to, you know, unique, different harmonies, but music that still sounds very harmonious to us. So we see the gold, of course, as always, the gold has blood on it as well. That's becoming a theme in this piece. Then we come to the secret garden. And this secret garden, again, kind of has a key, but it also has polytonal elements to it. So let's listen to a little bit of this fourth door, the secret garden door, which, of course, is watered, kept healthy by blood, of all things. So here is the fourth door, the secret garden. That's the secret garden. You hear the clarinet adding these slightly dissonant polytonal elements. 
one of my favorite movements as well. The thing that I like about this piece is that you get so much stylistic variety because all of these doors have their own unique character, and so it's like seven movements of this piece. And then we come to the the door of, of most importance, the door that musically kind of comes right in the middle of this piece, and that is the fifth door, the door that looks upon Bluebeard's massive kingdom, this door happened, I used to listen to this all the time as a kid because it's so uh, triumphant, uplifting, and loud music. It, it's, I think, a great moment for the brass section. So here's when she opens this fifth door onto Bluebeard's kingdom. Here's what that sounds like. So here we've arrived at the midpoint in our arch form. And again, as I mentioned, we are now firmly in C major, the polar opposite, diametrically opposed to the F sharp that we were in at the, the beginning of this piece and will end in. But interestingly here, so we're in C major, but Bartok is doing something here again that is never done by composers like Mozart. Brahms, uh, Beethoven, but is often done by composers like Debussy and other modernists from the 20th century. We hear all of these chords in succession. This is a very Janáček-esque move here to have chords in, su in succession with each other that tonally make no sense with each other. So we hear... So those are all just major chords one after another, but they're not part of any specific scale or anything like that. And so Janacek, I think, would love this passage because we're getting all of these moments of, of chaos where, you know, we hear this, and then at the same time, we're about to hear this. So for a split second, we hear, and then it resolves for us over and over and over again. So this is a passage that I feel like Janacek maybe could have, could have written himself or certainly would have loved. But anyways, that is the triumphant fifth door of, of Bluebeard's Castle, one of my all-time favorite arrivals in music. And then we get these very long last two movements. And as we noted in Wooden Prince, this is something that, that Bartok often does. He has four movements before this, this crucial fifth, which is the the kind of delineator that we're in the middle. And now we only have two movements 
on this flip side, you know, four has been divided into two, but these two movements are about twice as long as these previous door movements. And Bartok was obsessed with the actual timing of things. And so I'm sure if he was performing this, they would have been almost exactly the same amount of time for these two movements as for the four movements that precede this, this fifth door. So the sixth door, we've stopped getting blood and now we're going to, we're going to get into the really dark and foreboding doors, the highly symbolic doors. And I'm not going to try to interpret this plot. If you want to go do that for yourself, there's a lot of literature on what, what this all means. It's very, it's very symbolist, I think in a way, but what that symbolism actually is, I'm not sure I could tell you, but in any case, the sixth door is this sea of tears and where these tears came from. We, we, need to find out, but in, incredible writing here as well. And so I want you to hear a little bit of this, this Sea of Tears music, which Bluebeard really doesn't want her to see. These last two doors, he's very hesitant for her to enter. So here's a little bit of the sixth door, the Sea of Tears. So you actually get to hear there the transition to the sixth door. The sixth door is those fluttering figures. But before that, we hear, which happens several times, a very cool effect in this opera, where she knocks on the door and there's this sigh that comes out. It's a very cool, cool effect, very foreboding. But in any case, that's the sixth door, another dazzling moment of orchestration, those fluttering figures. And... So over the course of this sixth door, Judith finally is starting to figure out what's going on here, and she figures out what's going to be behind the last door, which turns out to be Bluebeard's former wives. And so there is this sense in this plot that, like, this is a recurring cycle where he brings wives into this castle, they look at the doors, and then they realize their ultimate fate, which is to be confined to this last door and she just she figures out what the blood was which she believes to be 
the blood of the other wives. And so this is this is a bad moment. Let's listen to a little bit of the end of this sixth door music when she actually figures out what's behind this final seventh door. We're going to skip most of the seventh door music, but here's the ending of the sixth door when she, this fateful moment, the kind of narrative crux of, of this piece, when she figures out what's behind this last door. dramatic section. I included that mainly because Bartok, I think, often gets the knock that he's not a particularly dramatic or emotional composer, very academic in some ways, but this couldn't be further from the truth. I think that's excellent narrative composition there. You can really hear her terror in discovering what is behind this, this last door. So it's his three wives behind this last door, uh, weird symbolism here again. He's got these wives of the morning, n- noon, and night. Not totally sure what to make of all of this. If you're interested, you can certainly look into it. But I want to play this climax of this seventh door with these three wives. And it kind of fades out, and we get some of the prologue music to end this piece. And the last thing that Bluebeard sings is the word darkness. And he sings it on these notes, which happen to be our key notes of this piece of piece of F sharp and C, that note that we focused on in the very middle. So clearly this dichotomy, darkness to light, back to darkness, this is kind of at the, the core of everything that's going on in this piece. So here's a little bit of the, the ending of Bluebeard's castle, this last seventh door.
So Bluebeard has put this jewelry on Judith that his other wives were also wearing, and she she starts to feel heavy, and she kind of is drooping under the weight, and so she she follows these other wives back into the the final seventh door, um, and the the music kind of fades out after that, and and we come to the conclusion of the opera. Interestingly. Bluebeard sings that phrase, darkness, on our notes of F sharp and C, but the opera ends going like this. And so the C that we had gets transformed to a C sharp. Undoubtedly, there's some symbolism in there as well, which I am unfortunately not nearly smart or astute enough to interpret uh, for myself, or at least offer an interpretation that's worth it for other people. But in any case, tons of symbolism in this work, and we've really not done it full justice by just going through it in a crash course manner like this. But it is a fantastic piece, albeit somewhat challenging to wrap your mind around. And so hopefully, if you're interested, you'll go and, and listen to more of this opera, break down some of the libretto that's in Hungarian, of course, but but has been translated, and but this is some of the some of the highlights, and I think there's some great music in this opera, and so I, I wanted to bring it to you today. So a rich year in musical history, a very rich year in in real history, and a rich year in pandemic history with with the Spanish flu. So that'll conclude our our penultimate episode here of our music and pandemic years. Uh, series, and we'll have, I think, one more for you coming up here at some point. And we've also got some other episodes that I'm very excited about coming up shortly. And so keep a lookout for, for many more episodes that will be coming to you in the coming days and weeks. As always, I hope everyone is, is staying safe, staying healthy, maybe starting to get back to some sense of normalcy as we maybe prematurely transition out of this, uh, this quarantine stage here. But for me here at Attention to Detail, just plugging along, still uh, staying shacked up, and just working through some amazing pieces of classical music, what could be better? So I will be back shortly with some great guests, with some more material, and in the meantime, stay safe. We will see you soon. <laughs>